This recording was made on Gornu country, 50k south of modern-day Adelaide. It's the only way that you can describe what a person is, describe what they do. There doesn't seem to be much job satisfaction or pleasure in this picture. G'day friends, thanks for hitting play. Today we're talking about a story that just came out in the news about the release of endangered bilbies back into pockets of wild desert in central Australia. These areas that they're being released into are fenced off so that they won't be gobbled up by cats or dogs or foxes, which means they'll have a genuine chance of re-establishing presence in those ecosystems. And then hopefully, with gradual eradication of those non-native pests, this marks the rebirth of a native species back into its rightful environment. Yes, right? Good environmental stories feel so rare to come by these days. So on the surface, this news immediately zaps me with that warm and welcome buzz of joy. From these pictures of adorable marsupials hopping about in the red dirt, watched fondly by lifelong conservationists with tears in their eyes, I know, feels. But beyond the Disney-level cuteness of this story, there's actually something incredibly important. Bilbies are burrowing animals, and each one shifts a few tonnes of soil every year. A few tonnes. To be clear, these creatures are about the size of a balled-up fist. So that's a lot of dirt from a tiny animal. And turning that dirt over is a pivotal component of naturally repairing tarnished Australian outback landscapes. Landscapes that have experienced constant and massive ecological degradation ever since colonial contact. Because that's the thing about Australian soil. Until 200 years ago, this land and all of the beings on it had never seen a hoof before. Hoof, hoof, that's an awkward word to say. But from emus, kangaroos and wombats, indeed to native human beings, the largest animals treading the red soils of Australia had pliant, padded soles on their feet that were gentle on the surface. And the most weight that would be bearing down on these leathery contact pads wouldn't have been more than 100 kilograms. So now compare that to a horse or a cow hundreds of kilograms heavier, and with bony, rock-hard hooves connecting that weight to the planet. What, think about what those hooves, pushed down by all that mass, could do to virgin landscape topsoil. The sad reality is that the speed and aggression with which early explorers and pastoralists introduced hoof livestock to Australia utterly destroyed the delicacy of this soil matrix pretty much the instant they arrived. Overnight, environmental havoc from the mountains of Kosciuszko to the Red Centre. Because by all accounts, what you and I know only as the cemented, scorched and splitting outback red dirt of the modern day, in fact used to be a soft, deep and spongy red loam. Think about that. Imagine your feet sinking into supple crimson mulch instead of rebounding off the bleak sunburnt cracks that we know of outback Australia today. Imagine moist and crumbly scarlet soil encircling your ankles as opposed to the clouds of bulldust that rise with every footfall instead. 
I'm not saying that the Europeans introduced water scarcity to Australia, but by bringing hooved animals, they definitely did introduce ground compaction with terrifying speed, which destabilised water runoff and in doing so, introduced erosion and salinity to an otherwise harmonious vegetation structure. This was rich soil, guys, and Aboriginal cultures knew it. This was soil that had plentiful nutrients, was low in pH, balanced by a consistent and predictable water table, and supportive of widespread and productive agriculture, the evidence of which has been discovered, but conspicuously not discussed, all over the entire continent. Did you know, for example, that there was a grain belt in Australia well before European settlers arrived? one that spanned through the central deserts, landscape considered by modern standards to be infertile, sweeping from east to west with continuity across a span five times the size of contemporary grain belts of today. Well, there was, and remnants of it suggest that it was significantly more fruitful than the agricultural practices that we know. So... Look, I promise I'm not going down this road as an indulgently overwrought lament for what's been lost. Whilst a genocidal extinguishing of native culture is indeed a disgrace beyond words, I'm talking about it more to present what I see as a cause for celebration. Because the evidence trickling into view of just how extraordinary Aboriginal land management was for me, lights a beacon of hope in an otherwise dark and intensely gloomy environmental narrative. Australia supported a large human population long before it became dominated by pale skin. And this, if we can negotiate the troubled waters towards a genuine reconciliation of historical atrocity, this is what underwrites our country's independent environmental security in the face of climate change. If we can properly atone for the genocidal abominations of our ancestors, native culture may be our Australian family's insurance. Am I making sense? What I mean is this. It shouldn't just be sorry. It should be sorry and please teach us. Because the modern ways that we manage land aren't working. I'm assuming that we can all agree on that. Our land is increasingly ruinous. Pests run rampant, farmers are doing it tough, we import a lot of food, and people are still hungry. Raising hooved livestock for consumption leaves enormous environmental footprints and makes no sense on a continent laden with large marsupials, kangaroos, whose numbers can be easily scaled and whose meat is way healthier for us than bovine equivalents. So my suggestion is that if we can expedite authentic reparations and offer genuine respect to Aboriginal pastoral wisdom, Australia actually has a fighting chance of becoming a veritable world leader of productive conservation. See, First Nations agriculture was of completely opposing foundations to those of modern-day food production. Born from thousands of years spent carefully refining the most successful land management techniques the world has ever seen, Indigenous farmers tended native flora and fauna across stable soils without fences as resources to be shared for the commonwealth of neighbouring clans all across the country. Every bit the idyllic utopia that that sounds like. 
Today, we see exclusively privatised farming of introduced crops in degraded soils that have been compacted by foreign hooves for two centuries straight. And far be it from me to dismiss the genuine hardship realities of life on the land. Australian farmers are up against it in 2020 and there is no doubt about that. But might it be easier with native plants in soils regenerated by the absence of hooves and the reintroduction of bilbies? That's why this story has left me feeling excited beyond my knee-jerk anthropomorphic fawning over furry little weebabs that are so cute they look like cartoons. The reality is that Australia has always been an agricultural paradise for long before the 19th century. Early pastoralists' excitement at discovering these huge tracts of land that were perfectly cleared of trees and undergrowth, that excitement wasn't misplaced. They had every reason to be blown away at the arable perfection laid out in front of them. It's just that it wasn't an accident. And it definitely wasn't designed by Indigenous pastoralists to be trampled down by a heavy invasive species with what may as well have been rocks connecting their feet to the earth. So that's why I like this Bilby story a lot, because... It heralds optimism that one day we might achieve self-sustenance through natural ecological repair and native agricultural knowledge, rather than relying on expensive emergent technology and heavy-handed sanctioning. For me, introducing a vital species like this to protected lands that are in dire need of some biological TLC, it marks the beginning of a new era of Australian conservation. The road ahead might be long, and it might be grimly but necessarily paved with the carcasses of ferals, but having spent the past two months in the outback experiencing its majesty and feeling the density of age in the silence, I'm hopeful. Because I like thinking that one day I might revisit these dusty patches that I've just passed through as vibrantly restored gardens of sustainability, glowing resilient for having rebounded from this chapter of immense adversity and supporting flourishing flora and fauna for millennia to come, stewarded by an enlightened Anthropocene generation. I, it's, it's idealistic, but I prefer to hold on to best-case environmental scenarios like this as achievable resumption of biological intention rather than just a lofty goal of the idealist. Because it is possible and we do have the capability to make it so. All eyes on the bilby. Thanks for listening.